think this is just pointing out what I think is so obvious to so many physicians, which is just the fragility of the healthcare infrastructure. My hope is that we will all get through it sooner than later and that hopefully as an industry come together with the right infrastructure and investments to make sure this doesn't ever happen again. Welcome to the Redox Podcast. I'm your host, Nico Skibaski, co-founder and president of Redox, where we are on a mission to make healthcare data useful and in turn, enable the frictionless adoption of technology in healthcare. The Redox podcast explores the intersection between healthcare and technology. How is tech making a difference? What are the barriers to adoption and how are they being overcome? We talk to some of our industry's brightest minds, up and coming technologists and health tech legends that have paved the way for what's to come. One thing is certain, healthcare will change dramatically over the coming years. My hope is that you'll leave these conversations with a bit more context, along with a jolt of optimism to continue working for a better healthcare. With that in mind, I welcome you to the Redox Podcast. Dr. Gita Nayar is the Chief Medical Officer for Greenway Health and nationally recognized leader in the health information technology field. Before joining Greenway, Gita was the Chief Healthcare Innovation Officer at Femwell Group Health, uh, one of the largest management services organizations in Florida. And prior to that, she was the CMIO at at and On top of her business responsibilities, we can't overlook the fact that Gita is a practicing rheumatologist and maintains faculty affiliation with the University of Miami, where she teaches at the medical school. Dr. G is the author of the Mobile Health Chapter in the HIMSS Medical Informatics Textbook and is a six-time HIMSS Digital Influencer. I am so pleased to welcome Dr. G to the Redox Podcast. Thanks for being on with us. Nico, thanks so much for, for the invitation. I wish we were in the same spot. I think it speaks volumes that uh, you're at the bottom of a mountain and I'm close to the ocean. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah, of course. And, you know, we were actually supposed to meet up at HIMSS in person, but of course it got canceled due to the coronavirus and what we're, uh, what's going on now. Um, as, as a doctor, that's got to be kind of weighing heavy on you. Do you want to kind of speak to what's changed in your world, obviously, well, beyond the, the things that's kind of changed for everyone? Sure. You know, I, I think first and foremost, everything has changed for everyone. Um, for me personally and my colleagues in the healthcare space, there's just enormous, um, there's enormous worry, right? I, I think that for for most docs, again, we're, we're very comfortable, again, dealing with sort of human suffering, um, dealing with with folks who have a lot of questions and anxiety. This, however, is a whole kind of different ballgame, as you can see, globally. And, um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate because some of this relates back to us just not having data and tests. But even more so, I think this is just pointing out what I think is so obvious to so many physicians, which is just the fragility of the healthcare infrastructure, right? So this this idea that we would have docs and nurses seeing patients without equipment. We would have patients that we don't know if they're positive or negative. We're kind of doing this guessing algorithm. Um, so it's, it's definitely a, it's definitely flipping medicine on its head. And I'm, my hope is that we will all get through it sooner than later and that um, we'll hopefully as an industry come together with the right infrastructure and investments to make sure this doesn't ever happen again. Yeah. It seems, it seems kind of like a ripe time for the industry. You know, we, we've been talking about for decades, how, Kind of broken the healthcare industry is, and you know, from a reform standpoint, as well as you know, within health systems, everyone's trying to figure out how to how to change it. Um, and the kind of overarching sentiment is, you know, it's too big to be utterly disrupted. But you know, something like COVID nineteen could be the disruption, you know, almost necessary for it to be reborn in a better 
in a better light, if you will, after after we come out of this. You know, I couldn't agree with you more. I think one of the best things that's going to come out of this is telemedicine, right? And you now have the perfect storm of a very engaged patient, a very engaged physician, engaged payer saying, hey, don't worry about it. We're going to relax all these rules and regulations. Uh, you, you, you use anything. You got a phone, you got a piece of paper, you got a video, you know, we'll, we'll take it all um, because there's such a need for capacity right now. So I, I think there will definitely be some lessons learned and some good things. But I, I think we definitely have kind of seen telemedicine come to light, value-based care come to light, and this whole concept of patient-provider partnership, as well as the, the piece I think a lot of us don't talk about, which is patient responsibility, right? Me as your doc, listen, I can I can only do as much as I can do for you, but you also have to have some skin in the game. And so you're seeing that now really play out beautifully with COVID, unfortunately, but I, I think we're all going to learn a lot here. That's a really interesting point. You know, um, I think engagement from patients is always one of the big challenges, especially when you talk about um, you doing, like, uh, okay. Oh, was that, was that your I'm sorry. I was muting. Would you, did you hear all that? Yes. That's my daughter. I'm sorry. <laughs> you should keep that in the podcast. That would be pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's very relevant in our work from home days. Um, you know, we're all, we all have our kids at home running around us. So another big change that's hit the world. But yeah, I was just, you know, on your point with with consumerism and patient engagement, I think it's something that we've been striving to get from patients, especially with uh, patients with complex, you know, comorbidities or uh, chronic conditions. With COVID-19, it's the exact sort of situation where our active engagement in staying socially distant from each other is actually going to be the thing that uh, helps to flatten that curve and hopefully keep our healthcare delivery system afloat. Definitely. You know, I think the other thing we've learned is I know everybody wants a pill. Everyone wants a vaccine. Everyone wants a, uh, a quick answer. And it's not very sexy to say, stay home, wash your hands, eat some fruit, you know, but um, the truth is these things can go a long way. So when we think about patient responsibility, it, it sometimes is these non-sexy things that, however, make the most impact. And so I'm also hoping that as a society and a population, we, we learn that as well. You've held both clinical and executive roles at, within the healthcare industry over the years. How has this diverse background helped to kind of shape your work, uh, bringing clinical medicine, business, communications, and healthcare technology together? Sure. So, you know, again, keeping on the COVID topic, it's so timely, and I think it's really going to define healthcare, certainly for this year, if not going forward. Uh, it's the perfect storm, I think, for someone with my background to add value, and I think we continue to need more folks like that. I was reading an article yesterday about how so much of hospital administration has become non-clinical, which is partly the reason why these hospitals are finding themselves in this predicament from this from the standpoint of not truly understanding the front lines, right? So I can tell you at Greenway that when this happened, you know, being able to connect the dots and say, okay, you know, I understand offices are going to close, they're going to go to telemedicine, they're going to be looking for help with triaging, doing telemedicine, figuring out where they can get equipment, how can they share with each other better, what can they do to communicate with their patients in mass. So all of these things immediately came to me without much, I don't want to say thought, but it, it just was so intuitive to, to what I know on the front lines, and then being able to mobilize that from a tech standpoint and a business standpoint um, to keep that stickiness with our customers. So I think the more folks, it, it's really about whatever you do on the back end, the more you understand the front end, you're going to have that much value. And the more you understand the back end when you're on the front end, I mean, it, it's really just kind of common sense from a 360 view. It's just so 
unique in this industry. And it's unfortunate that we have so many physicians that just know the front lines. They're really rather ignorant to the, to the back end. And then vice versa, you have so many administrative people who are well-versed in business and policy and regulations, but just have no clue what the day-to-day life um, or the, you know, day in the life of is like. And this environment that we're in now is just requiring whoever can help stop the bleeding period and gets it is going to be such an asset right now. Can you give us a little more background on Greenway? Like who are your customers? And, you know, of course it's a electronic health record vendor, but just educate our audience on kind of the, the footprint and what, what it looks like from your perspective. Greenway is a leading ambulatory care health tech vendor. We have an EHR, we have a PM system, we have a revenue cycle um, management product as well. And again, our our forte is the ambulatory space. We're cross-specialty, um, small to large practices, FQHCs. Again, our 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 docs are really the ones, our offices are the ones dealing with this on the front lines, right? We're trying to make sure our offices are as empowered as they can be because it really has to do with healthcare capacity and hospital capacity, right? Part of flattening the curve is going to be how do we keep things in the ambulatory environment, triage things appropriately, get people treatment appropriately, and really save the patients that are super sick um, from going to the hospital um, and making sure there's enough capacity so that the right people are getting there. And I would say again that COVID has just only exposed that because that's what I think we're trying to do every day in healthcare, right? We're, we're, we've been saying this, like, what can we do in the home? What can we do in the community? What can we do in the ambulatory environment that doesn't require an inpatient environment? Not to say that we don't need inpatient. We absolutely need inpatient, but we just need appropriate patients at the appropriate site of uh, service. So this unfortunate pandemic is, I think, going to force so many of the things we've been trying to do in the industry. And hopefully, we're also going to flip it on its head and have all stakeholders kind of having some skin in the game. You know, it's great to see some of the major payers waiving co-pays, waiving treatment costs, um, because they're appreciating how if your neighbor gets sick, it affects you, it affects me, it affects all of us, right? So I think we need to have that. We've just realized, you know, the Kevin Bacon it was the Instagram video where he talks about the six degrees of separation. It's we we're all connected, and and I think that's one of the things we're learning. So we've got to figure out how to how to work together, but also make sure all the incentives make sense. Yeah, absolutely. You know, from a, a healthcare economic standpoint, we always talk about the externalities of uh, people being you know not at one hundred percent within society, and most of those you know come from a financial standpoint. But when we have a pandemic like COVID nineteen. You know, having having a a disease that is so rampantly contagious really kind of shows you how quickly those externalities can mount on top of each other, and so it brings into light, like you said, value based care, the consumer piece of it. I'm interested, though. You know, you you've talked a lot about the things that has been accelerated by by the pandemic. Can you talk specifically about what you're doing at Greenway? Are there is there an initiative that uh, you've put forth to respond to it, or product features, or can, can you speak to any of that stuff? Sure. I mean, we're really doing everything we can for our customers. So we've already come up with custom templates, order sets, aligned to the new billing codes, aligned to the new telehealth codes. We are doing a webinar tomorrow. We did one last week. We were talking about everything we can do with the portal. How can we help with triaging, assessing, and, and look, keeping our offices afloat. I mean, as you know, many offices have had to close their doors, and yet they're working nonstop. And so they haven't even stopped to realize how do they actually keep seeing patients document appropriately and then bill appropriately. Um, the last thing we need after this is for half the practices to go out of business. There are small businesses like any other. And the workforce 
frankly, I mean, you see the statistics on the people getting sick or the work or the, or the doctors and nurses. So there's going to be an even bigger supply and demand issue when this is over. So we want to do everything we can to make sure our offices are staying afloat ahead of this and, um, and proactively doing everything we can. I mean, this is a very dynamic situation that keeps changing. So we're also just staying on top of it. But we've been doing all of the above and, and we'll continue to as this evolves. Even before this happened, physician burnout was was a factor that a lot of people talked about with, you know, physicians and, and really all sorts of providers being overworked and seeing too many patients and uh, and the like. Where do you think technology can play a role in in helping these days, you know, with, with improved capacity, with better documentation, billing? Like, where, where, where is technology's role in, in this pandemic? Everywhere. I mean, I think you're seeing it with exactly how this is playing out. So number one, how do we improve access, whether it's telemedicine, call centers, um, surveys, um, texting portals? How are we getting patients connected into the healthcare ecosystem and starting the triage process, the education process? Because, you know, some of the inundation in the offices are getting are people who just have allergies, right? I've got, I'm sniffling today. Oh, doc, do I have COVID, right? So there's also a capacity issue because people are not understanding, okay, do you have a fever? Are you having chest pain, shortness of breath? So a lot of this is um, health literacy, education, triaging, access. There are any number of touch points technology can play in that. Um, And I mean simple technology as well, call center, um, uh, again, text, um, video. It's, It's also, let's keep it simple. I think in technology, just because we can use AI and we can use all these things, sometimes simple things, can solve a lot of problems. Again, a lot of my colleagues right now, they've just, they're just banging the phones. They've closed their offices and they're banging the phones. And then if they have patients that need to be seen, they open the door and they've got PPE and they're ready to see them. So everyone's had to get really creative. Um, and then as I think about, um, you know, we mentioned burnout, we think about how quickly this is happening, you know, from a documentation standpoint, anything and everything we can do to help our docs document and go from patient one, two, three, four, down um, down through their schedule is going to be key. And that, again, goes with also the practice management side. And look, when we think about supply and demand and analytics, and as we think about how some of these patients will be tracked after this, there's a huge analytics component. And certainly one of the ways we could have seen this coming is predictive analytics, right? So I think there's some step foundational technologies that can go a long way. And then there's some very futuristic ones that as we think about how we want to prepare to never go through this again, those technologies will come into play. And I think things like AI and analytics would be very big for that. And not just, and not just us, right? Like globally. So I think about interoperability also and just, you know, how quick, how quicker could the physicians and scientists in China um, Italy, Europe share with the U.S. and vice versa. I mean, there's challenges there just in terms of getting each other information globally as well. You know, I, I live in the center operability world. And so thinking of it at that scale, is <laughs> it kind of makes it a much bigger uh, challenge than, you know, just sharing the local chart with the hospital across the street. Um, it's, it's definitely kind of widened my view uh, of what interoperability could be at scale and what kind of fully liquid uh, medical record data uh, could could enable. Well, that's how we should think about it because we're all global citizens. I think that, I think COVID has shown us that. COVID-19 has shown us that. And as we scramble to find a vaccine and a treatment, 
you know, we're, we're grappling with who's ahead of us and who's ahead of us are the countries that got hit before us. So, you know, we're, we're grasping for straws. We look at this one study with hydroxychloroquine and erythromycin and, you know, we, it's very different reading a paper on 20 patients than actually talking to that original scientist or that original PI. So, um, and actually getting access to those charts, you know, as a rheumatologist looking at that study, just sitting here on my desk, um, it's, it's not a lot. It, it's, it's, it's very experimental. So, you know, we're, we're going to solve this as a global citizen. We're not going to solve this as just the USA or just a region. So I think that this has again, humbled hopefully all of us into thinking of interoperability as global, not just hospital A and hospital B domestically, but truly to be interoperable. And, and as we think about the patients we serve, we're all global citizens. I mean, look at how many people are traveling all over the place. So it's the chart has to go with the patient, has to go with the country. Absolutely. So you brought up treatments and vaccines. I, I wonder, like, how is this thing going to end? Are, are we all going to eventually get it and then become immune to it? Or are we going to flatten the curve enough to until a vaccine can be created for, so not all of us have to get it. Like, what, what is it? Uh, what is your hypothesis? That's like a question for God, right? That's not a question for me. And probably the person, at least domestically, that I would say is the best pulse on that is, I mean, the person I'm certainly watching is Dr. Fauci, right? Dr. Fauci is the head of NIAID at the NIH. He's a rheumatologist. He's an infectious disease doc. He got us through the HIV um, crisis. So, you know, I, I follow Dr. Fauci. I worked under him, uh, briefly when I was in DC. So I have a lot of respect for him. Um, I think we don't know, Nico. I, I, I hate to be again, one of those people that hypothesize. I think we will get through it. I think it's going to be very painful. I think we've seen that. I think the mortality morbidity rates remain unknown because so much of the data is unclear, but we're just starting to be frank, at least domestically, it's, it's really just starting. And it, I, you know, my guess is it'll likely be all of those things. It'll be something about herd immunity. We will eventually develop a vaccine before then we'll come up with various treatment modalities, some of which will be more efficacious than others, but it's going to be us, um, you know, crawling, walking and running. That's how it's going to go like anything else, but doing it as quickly as we can, because it's, um, it's really sad. This is all really, really, really sad. Yeah, and and you know, beyond just the the health, the public health disaster, obviously with social distancing and us having to stay at home, it has a huge effect on the economy. And you know, I look at a lot of states putting out um, stay at home orders, and you know, they're only lasting a couple of weeks. Um, and on one hand, it's it's huge for you know to ask your population to not go out to restaurants and bars and you know stimulate the local economy like you typically do but it doesn't seem long enough you know 2 3 weeks it, you know with the amount of information that are that we're working off of here it doesn't seem like we're going to have a solution within the next couple of weeks um do you, how how long how long do you think this is going to last this will be this year this is going to be this year um as far as the different the different peaks and, and such you know it's it's new york is the epicenter Louisiana looks like it's next. Florida's not too far behind. We're going to keep seeing, I think, epicenters. And um, I, I agree with you. I think it's, you know, and the only data we have is other countries, right? So if you look at the curves of Italy, um, Europe, uh, countries like India, I mean, I will tell you that some of the countries that you're not hearing much about, they went on lock. the countries went on lockdown. I mean, India went on lockdown as soon as this pretty much started in China. So, 
you know, the very, very aggressive approach seems to be working. And again, it's, it's not fun for any of us. It's certainly not good for the economy, but as far as saving lives, it's so far the only proven method that has worked. And it's worked beyond erythromycin, Plaquenil, getting ventilators, PPE. There is not enough. This is, it's very simple. And, and the way I, you know, a lot of friends and, and colleagues have also, non-medical people, I think the medical kind of folks get it, but it's, it would be the same as if we all got, and I'm going to say this very carefully, but you know, there are scarier things we deal with as physicians, tuberculosis, HIV, cancer. There are scarier, more acute and deathly infections we deal with or disease states we deal with. With coronavirus, that's that's part of the, the scariness is we don't know enough about it, but that's not what scares us. What's scaring us is it's really about healthcare capacity. So let's take coronavirus out of it for a second. You know, if we all, if just everyone in the world got the regular seasonal flu all at the same time, we would be in the exact same spot we are today. Even knowing what the flu was, knowing how to treat it, knowing exactly what to do. This, is ex- this would play out exactly the same way because it's truly about capacity. It's supply and demand. It's basic economics. There are not enough doctors and nurses on planet Earth. There's not enough PPE on planet Earth. There's not enough ventilators on planet Earth all at the same time to deal with an acute illness like this. So it's, it's that for me, if we had, if I feel like if people had talked about this or the media had talked about it in that way, people would have had a better time wrapping their heads around it. Because I think a lot of people are just sort of like, ah, it's just a virus. Oh, it's just a cough and cold. And some people do fine, some don't. But I, I think if we talked about it in a way that was simpler, and I think this is a basic fundamental problem with with healthcare and medicine, we're so jargony and gibberishy and how many curves have you and I looked at, right? But in layman's term, it's just, could the world handle if we all got the flu at the same time? It's pretty obvious the world couldn't ha- can't handle it. So the things you would do to risk mitigate are these things, which is staying home, social distancing, keeping your immune system up, um, doing common sense things like washing your hands and not putting yourself at risk. There is no vaccine. There is no cure. Even when you get the flu shot, it's a hit or miss depending on the strain for the year. And viruses are not like bacteria. There's no antibiotic for a virus. It's, It's supportive care. It's fluids, rest, stay home stay away from other people. And yes, some people get sick and they die and they have to go on a vent. Um, I think one of the things we're missing here is people don't understand what a ventilator is. Um, one of the other missed opportunities, which might sound morbid, but is something that should always happen at your annual visit with your primary care doctor, should you have a primary care doctor and should you actually go, is end of life planning. You know, you have to talk about DNR and do not resuscitate and do not intubate and do you have a will do you have a living will what are your religious wishes these are things all of us should think about if we are at an age where that makes sense and you know we we don't it's an uncomfortable topic and especially if you never met your primary care doctor never went but this is standard conversations for the 70 75 plus population that we as docs have with our patients but if you don't come in then you're in a situation and your whole family's in a situation and it's tough. It's really tough. I read an article the other day talking about how a lot of health systems were thinking about imposing a kind of blanket DNR across these patients just because they're trying to ration the resources, both people and PPE and ventilators and things like that. I don't know if anyone has ever has put that in place yet, but it seems it seems 
like one of the the biggest sort of moral quandaries when when you look at trying to figure out how to take care of the the most people. Have you been a part of any of those discussions? So, you know, every hospital has a um, medical ethics sort of board or committee that comes to tough decisions together. But again, I would say that every hospital, every provider or every provider now is so out of their element. And the more you can take those things off the table, you don't want to be the patient or the family's case being discussed in that right? If, if you as a family can make that decision, if you as an individual can make that decision, yes or no, right? I'm not proposing either one. Every every case, every patient is an individual. And I've met plenty of 85-year-olds that are healthy than 50-year-olds, right? And have better lifestyles and genetics. And so, you know, uniform blanket guidelines, th- this is all happening reactionary because of what we're in. And we should always be proactive, not reactive. Yeah, there's a. We had a virologist come and speak to our, our company at Redox, and he he brought a quote along that really hit home for me from Michael Levitt that said, "Everything we do before a pandemic will seem alarmist, and everything we do after a pandemic will seem inadequate." And I think that that hit home for me because before Colorado was on lockdown here where I live, um, and seeing this kind of spread across the country, I was like, "Oh well, it's you know." Maybe in our little bubble here in Boulder, it, it won't hit us and it's not going to affect us that much. And then once school started closing and they locked us down, I was like, wait, why didn't we do this sooner? We should have we should have been doing this for weeks. Right. <laughs> yeah, it, it exactly described my my state of mind through it. And and once once you're on the, the inadequate side, once you're on the other side of it, um, seeing people who are still on the alarmist side, um, you know, even though I, I, I kind of embodied that just a couple weeks ago, um, it, it, it's... Uh, it's like two separate worlds. Um, it's it's wild how how different it changes once once it kind of sweeps over your area. I do think part of that is we didn't do a good job of translating the problem, right? So again, like I said, if it, if we were to say we all got the flu at the same time around the world, that's a little easier to put your head around than there's this crazy new virus nobody knows about. Looks like it only affects old people. So if you're young, don't worry. I mean, there's so much. There continues to be so much bad information that you know you can't get people to rally. We got people to rally behind different things, but not one cohesive uh, concept. I, I think that's an interesting thing to talk about, though, because we, we obviously want patients to be in, engaged in their care to do the right things. Um, but like you said, a lot of places are getting, you know, potentially patients that shouldn't be going in because they have allergies or, you know, their symptoms aren't necessarily strong enough to um, to go in and get checked yet. How? How should a patient think about, or you know, just a general consumer think about that balance and um, deciphering the good from bad information out there, so they they can be their both their best advocate when it comes to their own healthcare. Best thing right now is to follow CDC guidelines. I mean, follow CDC guidelines. Listen to Dr. Fauci if you're watching the news, and if you have a relationship with your doctor, doctor's office, and you're concerned about something, call them. Um, and you know, it's um, it's one of those things where again. When we talk about the uh, retailization of healthcare, you know, we talk about the CVS Minute Clinic and things. There, there is a role and a place for those types of what I call transactional uh, patient, uh, patient physician or patient um, provider relationships. But there is something to be said about the non-transactional, right? The doctor that actually knows you, knows your situation. They're the ones you want to have now, right? They're the one that you want. Um, 
I can tell you, for example, I had a patient call me that, you know, because of this whole erythromycin plaquenil thing, it's becoming very difficult for patients with autoimmune diseases like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis to get their plaquenil prescriptions filled. Um, there is now um, limits being put on them because a lot of people misinterpreted what President Trump said and, and are trying to now hoard plaquenil as a um, uh, prophylactically against the virus when all we know about it is that it's experimental and it's really being reserved for end-of-life situations. So now you have healthy people taking Plaquenil and the most vulnerable population like lupus and RA patients not being able to have access for that and being more prone to getting COVID. So when a patient can get a hold of someone like me who knows their story, knows their history, can fight for them, get them the medication they need, and or write for a three-month prescription with refills because we know that this is going to go long and because I, you know, we understand the capacity issue and we understand what's going on with that patient, that's where the transactional stuff doesn't fit. That's where you're not going to get from a CVS minute, click, your minute clinic. So I think the idea of you got everybody has to have a primary care doctor, whether you're young or old, healthy or sick, you got to have a primary care doctor. You got to have your quarterback for anything as it relates to your health care, your family's health care, whether it's coronavirus or something else. It's it's so important. It's it's truly very important that relationship. Switching gears a little bit, you're uh, you're big on social media. How do you see social media adding to this conversation and changing the personal and educational experience of of kind of our society as they're as they're consuming this information coming from all these different sources? You know, it's interesting. I've I've actually found social media to have a role here, but both in positive and negative ways. So I would say that the um, the negative way is that so much misinformation has spread and it's spread quickly. Um, I think we've also seen a lot of people being very fearful and kind of bullying one another in different situations. Um, the the flip side to it is that the people that do have good information are able to use social media, whether it's the CDC, physicians, Surgeon General, you see Sanjay Gupta out there, um, you know, any number of the, of the news outlets are, I, th I think it's actually kind of a, a shining moment for journalists as well, because for so long, social media had sort of taken over, but now everyone's sort of looking for good information and solid journalists. So I'm, I'm appreciating kind of the role that um, good information has and solid information. I would also say in the, in the age of social distancing, where we're all kind of a little, um, you know, missing our, missing our social interaction, missing our, 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 uh, our, uh, our groups. So social media has played a role in making people feel like they're not alone and that they have each other. So I think social media's role in this has evolved in both good and bad ways. And it's been an interesting thing to watch. It's been interesting to watch. I don't know how you, how you feel about it, but, but it's been up and down for me. I've sort of been like, what? I can't believe that person said that or posted that. And then I've been like, oh, that was really sweet. And oh, that was good. And <laughs> so it's, it's been a mixed bag for me as a social media expert. Yeah, for sure. I've been, I've been finding myself, you know, quickly sliding into DMs with people, you know, both on, on situations where I'm like, hey, we should talk about what you just posted because I didn't, you know, don't agree with it. And I don't want to start a, a, you know, a public war. Uh, but also in situations where I'm just like, "Hey, nice to nice to see you out there. Um, let's let's connect." <laughs> it's it's funny because a lot of these people that I found myself hopping on, you know, just casual Zoom calls with, or um, you know, interacting with social media with more. It, th these aren't people who are local here with me, so it's not like I would have been in person with them anyways. But it's almost this extra excuse to to connect more with people just because we're so disconnected physically, we can kind of connect more 
virtually. Um, and it gives us an excuse to do that. Definitely. I also think, you know, I've personally called so many, so I've gotten phone calls from so many old friends and, and colleagues and have also reached out to so many old colleagues and friends to just say, Hey, are you, you know, how are you doing? You okay. And we should have really, you know, caught up sooner than, than during this crisis, but it, it has been, it has been a really nice time to catch up with just people you love to say, Hey, I just was thinking about you, you know, and hope you're doing all right. Absolutely. So um, I, I want to end on a on a kind of light question here. What is your favorite social distancing activity? Oh my gosh, my favorite social distance. What's our favorite social distancing activity, Sonia? What do you got? Calling. Calling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so my daughter has started FaceTiming. Yes, she's for the first time been allowed to use the, she FaceTimes her friends. I feel like I have, she's eight. She could be a teenager now though. They were like, do you want to call a friend? <laughs> Mommy and daddy are working. Do you want to call a friend? So um, yeah, I, I would say good old fashioned calling people, FaceTiming people. I would also say we spent a lot of time in the pool and just going for walks and runs and playing soccer and biking way more than ever. So um, but also eating. So we're not sure whether we're going to lose weight or gain weight like we talked about. We'll see how it plays out. <laughs> I think that, you know, there's potentially a, a long lasting positive effect of this and that I think a lot of people are being more active, are spending more time with family, are cooking more. Uh, and these are all good, healthy things. So, um, you know, there there might there might be an upside to this as we as we look around the other side. Definitely. And getting to know your neighbors. I mean, we've always had a nice, nice neighborhood, but now we find ourselves all standing on the edge of the driveway six feet apart and just being like, hey, how you doing? <laughs> how you doing? Like, so I think it's, it's, it's definitely, there's definitely some, some positive things. I just hope that a lot of the front lines, healthcare workers um, do get the support they need and, and also get to um, get some recognition when some of this is over. Because, you know, when we talk about burnout, I think one of the things for me, that's also happened is I think in the past, people never really understood how, you know, fighting physician burnout related to them. And I think that this now hopefully resonates a little more with folks and, and that we remember we're all, uh, we're all neighbors and we've all got to help each other out. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. I really appreciate your perspective, both as a, a provider, as well as a technologist um, who's out there fighting for this every day. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. And thank you so much for um, bringing these questions to bear. I think your audience will really appreciate it. Hey, everybody. Nico here again. I wanted to give another thanks to Dr. G for a great conversation and a lot of valuable information today. If you're wondering how digital health can help during this pandemic, head on over to redoxengine.com COVID-19 to see a catalog of solutions available for free through the Redox network. Until next time, keep socially distant, be nice to one another, and keep your hands to yourself. Thanks for listening to the Redox Podcast.